0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. With all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example You have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord, our shepherd, our overseer, dear God, we pray in your mercy and grace that you would shepherd our hearts and minds now as we go through this passage and hear some difficult things to hear, Lord. But bring us, God, to a deeper understanding and receptivity by the grace of your Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Well, you might remember that Peter began his letter uh, heavily emphasizing the believer's identity in Christ emphasizing the great things that God has done for the Christian look what God has done has been his emphasis up to this point and the climax came what in verses 9 and 10 you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for his that's God's own possession verse 10 you were not a people but now you are God's people once you had not received mercy But now you have received mercy. That was sort of the the climax, the apex of look what God has done for you. And then he turned to application. In light of what God has made you to be in Christ, in light of all his grace, how then shall we live? In other words, worship. How do we respond? And Peter's main strategy that he introduced in verses 11 and 12 was a call to live a pilgrim life here in this world you may remember that beloved i urge you as sojourners and exiles first of all we are to embrace this part of our identity and then we are to engage in that inner spiritual battle against the passions that wage war against our souls and then we are to live distinct lives before the world he says there in verse 12 that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So that was through verse 12. And then verse 13, he began to flesh out this strategy of doing good, living as pilgrims and sojourners in a very practical way by introducing another theme, which is really part of the heart and soul of what he's doing now, and that is the theme of submission. Verse 13 is the overall Principle, He said be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You may remember that what he's saying there's subject yourselves to every authority structure that's been created by man. And we looked at other things regarding that because God is behind that and so forth. And then what he did is he applied this general principle to three major spheres of their lives. First of all, as citizens in relationship to the state, submit yourselves, verses 13 through 17. And then secondly, as slaves or household slaves or servants to their masters, verses 18, uh, verse 18 and, and uh, what we would call maybe the parallel today, the workplace. And then lastly, uh, I had, did not read it, but then in chapter 3 he applies it to the, ma- to the household, to the marriage of a, of, a, of a wife to an unbelieving husband. So those are the three spheres of application that he has of this overarching imperative. And what is that overarching imperative? Again, it's be subject for the Lord's sake to, to every human institution. This is part of doing good uh, so the world can see. This is part of living as aliens. You know, This is not your final home. We're all passing through the various nations of this world and so forth. And in between his application to the workplace, verse eighteen, or the slaves, the household servants, and marriage, chapter three, in between, he inserts that the heart and soul principle of what he's getting at, and we find that in verse nineteen. So, if you look at verse nineteen, here is the here is the central message. This is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly that's the message the main message is God calls believers to endure unjust suffering while doing good God calls believers to endure unjust suffering while doing good and should someone say well yeah but he's talking to slaves here and I'm not a slave and or he's talking to uh, the wife of an unbelieving husband. I'm not even married. I'm single. He, he takes the same verbiage, the same vocabulary that he applies in those cases, and he applies it generally to all Christians, to all Christians. Those were just specific cases. And he does so in chapter 3. Uh, if, you, if you look there, you'll note that he says in verse 8, he brings the section to an end and says, Finally, all of you, note that, All of you, he says, what I'm writing, I'm applying to all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind, and here it is, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may receive a blessing. So it applies to all of you universally. Same with verse 14. Even if you, all of you, should suffer, any of you for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good. He's talking about anyone, any Christian, if that should be God's will. And then the key verse, of course, that we've pointed out, chapter 4, verse 19, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good so he's not talking strictly or only to uh, the the workplace or slaves in their culture or to the wives of unbelieving husbands and so forth this applies to all believers now I know that some of you in this room have already had your sensibilities jolted (laughs) this has hit you hard already really endure suffering while being treated unjustly for doing good, endure, endure ill treatment. Yes, God's people are called, we're told here, to endure unjust suffering while doing good. We're called to what? Suffer well, suffer as Christians, suffer as those who have hope to not return evil for evil. And, and he notes, he says, this is our calling. That's very important to underscore. To this you have been called, he says in verse 21. In chapter 3, verse 9, to this you have been called. This is part of our vocation, our calling in the Christian life. It's not the entire vocation of a Christian, to be sure. There's much more to our calling, our life, our vocation as Christians. But this is part of our calling as Christians. Essential to grasp that right away Because you need to know and you need to understand that Christians do not suffer for no reason. (laughs) We suffer in part when we suffer doing good because God has called us to this. To be a Christian, remember, means what? To be a little Christ. And if they treated our Lord this way, they will treat us this way. And when the world hates you, said Jesus, know, first of all, that the world hates. Hated me. So, this is our calling, beloved. And it it doesn't make it maybe necessarily immediately easier to hear it. But we need to get there, we need to learn. And, and listen to the Lord. Let this sink into our hearts as part of the of being a Christian is being like Christ and being treated like him. Paul uh, supports this in Philippians 1 29 you may remember Paul writing from prison says in Philippians 1 29 it has been granted to you it's been given to you God's grace it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe praise God it's been granted to you to believe. That part, we'd say, thank you, Lord. <laughs> thank you for granting me faith. But he says, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, you see. That's part of the gift of God's grace and our salvation is, be, is what? It's to be so associated with Christ that we are treated like Christ. That is God's gift to you, you see. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for righteousness' sake, yeah. for to you belongs the kingdom of heaven. And so this is indeed a calling, and it's essential to remember that we don't suffer for no reason. We suffer because we belong to Him, is part of our calling. And so what I want to do with our time this morning is just focus right there on this one main point. I just want to understand that. I want, to, I want this to sink in. Verse 19, God's people are called to endure unjust suffering while doing good. I want to talk about that rather than take a bunch of time on talking about or explaining first century slavery and all that. And I just want to talk right now about this central theme. And why? Why do I don't want to do that? Because more and more, beloved, more and more this is essential to grasp because more and more, when you do good, you will suffer. More and more in the climate of our culture and society, when you do good, you will be insulted, you will be ostracized, you will be penalized, you will be marginalized, you will lose your livelihood, as some have already, you will be persecuted. So it's essential to understand this principle. Verse 19, God's people are called to endure unjust suffering while doing good. But it's also essential, I think, to understand because more and more I also find some Christians who uh, think the exact opposite. They do not see this virtue as being of of belonging to Christ. In fact, they're already locked and loaded. They're ready to return evil for evil. Just give them the chance. (laughs) They're ready to return hate for hate. They're ready to make someone else pay for the way they're being treated. And they don't see yet the light of this calling, this virtue of being like Christ and reflecting Christ to the world. And lastly, another reason to emphasize this this morning and and understand it clearly is there are still some Christian circles that teach, believe it or not, if you do right, all will go right. No, (laughs) it doesn't work that way. Just look at the Lord. So I want to focus on verse 19 in its context, staying closely tied to verse Peter in a a few passages from Paul. And I just want to ask two questions of it this morning. How do we suffer well? And why should we suffer well? Motivation. But first of all, how do we suffer well? Well, first of all, we know, beloved, how do we suffer well? We know that all Christian behavior is the result of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in our own hearts. In other words, ultimately, how do we do anything in following Christ? The answer ultimately comes from the grace of God's Spirit who indwells us. Like Paul says in Galatians 5, you know, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out or fulfill the deeds of the flesh. We know that, we understand that, but the Spirit doesn't cast a magical spell on us. The Spirit uses means. And so, the question we're asking now is, how is it that the Spirit, by what means would He help me to live like this? <laughs> to not return evil for evil. To not be consumed with rage and anger and be, and be a vengeful person. I need this just as much as any of you. How do I patiently endure what I really don't deserve, an injustice, and keep doing good? Keep doing good. Well, in part, in part, the answer to that in this context is from that little phrase in the middle of of verse 19. When mindful of God. Mindful of God you endure. Mindful of God. That's part of what Peter wants us to, to understand here. In other words, this kind of Supernatural living, this supernatural response to to injustice uh, begins with the thought life like so much of the Christian life, right? Right actions we've said flows from, right thinking. We have the mind of Christ. We are to be being renewed in our mind uh, by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God. But what does this mean when mindful of God? What exactly might Peter be getting at? Well, the term mindful is interesting. It has two basic meanings. One of them is conscience, meaning my conscience, right? And the other one is consciousness, awareness. That's how the ESV translates it. Mindful, being mindful, being aware, or conscience. The New American Standard, some of you have that translation maybe in front of you. The New American Standard, standard renders it that way it says for the sake of conscience right before God in other words for the sake of having a right conscience before God endure well this would explain a a reason meaning a, a why should I do this it's not how but I do not think that's the best understanding there's there's some complexity here I won't go into all of it but I think the SV has it right here that it is awareness. It's a consciousness of God. The, the Christian Standard Bible takes it that way as well. And the, the, the structure here is that by means of being aware of God, you endure. In other words, by thinking of God in the middle of that unjust situation, being conscious, of, aware of Him, you endure unjust suffering. I think that's the best way to understand it and what might be what what might he mean by saying being mindful being aware of God in the middle of this well for sure it means taking your eyes off yourself and woe is me how bad this is and I don't deserve this is but be thinking about God in what ways well already he's told us that we even submit for the sake of the Lord verse 13 there's part of it right there, for, for the sake of the Lord. And we said, in part, what that means is for the, for the sake of the name of the Lord, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his reputation. My goodness, am I going to respond identical to the rest of the world? All of us are treated unjustly, but for the sake of the Lord, being thoughtful and conscious of God, this is an opportunity right now for us to demonstrate that the gospel is real, that Christ is real, and we don't live according to the same standards, the same self-preserving standards of the world, but we walk like Christ. Be mindful. Be thinking of God in the midst of this. His, His light is at stake in you. His name is at stake in how you respond here at work right now. Will there be no difference between you And the rest of society. Blessed are those. Who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Are you blessed you see. So that's one thing Peter means. When he says being mindful. Or by being mindful. Of God. Mindful of the Lord. But Peter has more in in mind. By virtue of the context. I explain. he's He's saying also being mindful. Of all that God is to you. And all that God has done for you. Who is God to you in the midst of this situation? In other words, this is a call to trust God again. Trust Him. Bring Him into the equation in your mind that you're wrestling between you and these people. Bring God in. Be mindful of Him. And who is He in all of this to you, you see? What connection might God have to all this unjust suffering? Wayne Grudem, uh, in his comments here, I think is very helpful. He says, A trusting awareness of God's presence and never failing care is the key to righteous suffering. A key to righteous suffering is what? A trusting awareness, faith, right? Of God's presence and never failing care. Trusting in him is, he says, the key, maybe we say a key, right, to, to righteous suffering. And I think that's true. But someone might ask, well, I, I get that. I agree, but where does he get that from the context? Where does he get that from? Well, look at verse 25. You were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls be mindful of God who is he to you right now in the midst of this he's my shepherd he didn't lead me astray by bringing me here he's the overseer of my soul no accident I'm in this spot there's no accident behind this tough moment at work where I'm saying I'm not going to use these pronouns you want your shepherd brought you there, and he's the overseer. And so this is a call to what, as, well, as Grudem says, is to trust him, to be aware of his, of his never-failing care. And we see this exemplified in Jesus. He's, he was the man who was truly mindful of God at all times, right? mindful of God, mindful of the Father. I came to do the Father's will, said the Lord Jesus. And he was mindful of God in the midst of his sufferings. And so we see what we've just said, exemplified in verse 23. He, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. That's what the Lord wants from us. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But how did he do it? Verse 23, second half, but continued entrusting himself to him, mindful of God, continued entrusting himself to him. To him, who is he? He's the one who judges justly, you see. You see his conscious awareness of the Father. And again, in moments like these and texts like this, we're often inclined to to immediately click the switch to, well, he did what he did because he's the son of God. I mean, well, that's kind of a tough example for me, right? He, he, we, we think of his deity, but don't forget, for him to be your substitute, for him to fulfill all righteousness, human being for human beings, he needed to endure what we are called to endure without reliance upon his deity. And so, Philippians 2, he set aside that independent use of his deity and to surrender himself to suffering, even suffering on the cross, says Paul. Death on a cross. So how did he endure it? The same way you and I are called to endure it. How? In trusting faith in the Father. Entrusting to him who judges justly. He exercised the same faith we're being called to exercise by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to say that the, regarding entrusting, if we understand what's that mean, well, there's another translation issue here. A few, there's a few of these in this, in this text. In fact, there's quite a few. But in the original language here, beloved, there is no direct object. What's that mean? It means there is no himself there. Continue, he continued entrusting to Him. That's it. Very stark. He continued entrusting to Him, Him who judges justly. Uh, but, you know, you understand why ESV, New American Standard, NIV, provide an object, and they provide the word Himself. Himself's not there, but they provide Himself... Uh, in part because they, they want to close the, you know, this open-ended sort of phrase, and they're taking from chapter 4, verse 19, where it says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to the Creator. And so their souls is there, and so if Peter later said their souls, the translators say, well, let's say the himself, right? But listen, I, I think we need to leave it open the way it is in the text. Because Jesus, when, when he entrusted uh, himself, he was not only entrusting himself. What's he saying? He was entrusting, he was handing over continually, what, everything, the whole situation, to him who judges justly. And he wasn't about to be judged. Sin was about to be judged in him. And also those who treated him the way they did. In other words... It's not limited to entrusting Himself. He, he gave everything over to the Father all the time. He entrusted those, those who mocked Him, those who, who jammed thorns into His head. He entrusted Pilate. In, he entrusted those who whipped Him. He entrusted those who put nails in His hands, and His feet. He, he handed them over to Him who judges justly. He left it in His court, so to speak, in His hands. And so what Peter's telling us is that we, how do we, how do we suffer well? We become like Christ, mindful of God, mindful of the Father for His sake, mindful of who he is for us. He's our shepherd in the midst of this. This is not an accident. He's the overseer of our souls. And we entrust, we entrust what we hand over these people, we hand over this situation. We we, we give it to him, we place it in his hands, we don't become consumed with bitterness, we don't become eaten up with rage and anger, trying to imagine ways, I'll get mine, I'll get back, wait till tonight, wait till later, wait till tomorrow, I'm prepping for my conversation, none of that. You hand it over to him, and you exercise faith that there is coming a day when God's going to make all things right when things will be put back into balance, when all people will give an account, you see. We are being mindful of God. We are second coming people, right? This is a hard thing to do. I'm not saying like, hey, just, you know, be like me. (laughs) Be like me means you're going to wrestle with this, right? Because there are things that hurt you so deeply, so profoundly when they're done unjustly that this won't be your first reaction, maybe. Your first reaction will be something else. And I know what that is. It's a growing bitterness and a, a, a vindictive sort of vengeful desire to get back at this person. This idea that in the by and by it would all be made right. That's hard to accept. But it's the truth. It's the gospel. remember talking to again the, the man who cuts my hair. I've been going to him. I told you for years talking with him slowly, slowly about this or that. He's of Iranian descent. He, he And he has reacted entirely against the abuse of the Muslim faith in his country and the people who are being killed in the name of Allah, in the name of God, this and that. And one day when he was cutting my hair, I was hoping his scissors was far away because he was, at that point, he's all, don't be telling me that God will settle it in in, in heaven. (laughs) That's what I was afraid of, but no, he... But you can see, what I'm getting at is he was round up. You know what I mean? He was round up like we get. But listen, he does not have the spirit in him. But you and I do. And we understand what the scripture says. Paul reinforces it for your conscience this morning. Listen to what Paul says in response to the gospel. In Romans chapter 12, Paul says this in verse 19. Beloved, never, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. That's quite a statement. Wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And he repays with wrath. The kind of thing you could never conjure up. And you say, well, what am I to do then? Well, he says, verse 20, to the contrary. To the contrary. If your enemy's hungry... Feed him. Imagine that. (laughs) If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This will burn through his conscience. The worse I treat this guy, the better he treats me. (laughs) And you heap those burning coals on his head. This is in part of what uh, Paul means in, in Philippians, when, when writing to them, he says, uh, do not be frightened in anything, Philippians one twenty-eight. by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. It just reminds them that there, that there is a, a goodness That is real and a justice that is coming. You heap burning coals on their head. And then he says, Paul's back to Paul. His closing statement is, do not be overcome by evil. But overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome with bitterness, with anger, with revenge, with hatred, with spite, Don't be overcome with evil or by evil, but you overcome evil with good. And be like your Heavenly Father, right? And so the grace to suffer like this, man, the grace to suffer like this, how do we do it? It comes from the Lord, we know that. But here's in part, be mindful of God, be mindful of God. Now... The motivation. Let's get to motivation. Why suffer well like this? Why go through that? Does Peter give us any motivation here in First Peter chapter 2? And yes, I will say he gives us uh, three motivating statements, I think. Uh, the first one is that God is a rewarder. and I'll explain that. And the second one is that Christ's sufferings are our example. They are a model for us, and we're supposed to be motivated by that and copy him. And and then lastly, that Christ's sufferings bring new life. In other words, they're not just a model or example. They they achieve something. They're redemptive. Uh, They make dead people come alive. (laughs) So this is why we should. So those are three reasons why we should seek to grow in this way and suffer well and return good for evil uh, even While we're being treated unjustly first of all because God is a rewarder this will be a little tricky to understand but again it's because of some of the grammar and some of the textual difficulties verse 19 it says Uh, peter says for this is a gracious thing being mindful of god one endures sorrows while uh, suffering unjustly this is a gracious thing then notice how gracious things repeated in verse 20 for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure in other words wow that's good you didn't get frustrated when you sinned and then got beaten (laughs) that's nothing what about when you don't sin and you're beaten (laughs) unjustly that's where he goes but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure once again this is a gracious thing he says again in the sight of God so what does this mean a gracious thing what's he getting at how can this be motivating to us well literally literally the text reads this grace that's it this grace and at the end there before God this grace, that's, that's, that's all it says. So what's he mean, this grace? Does that mean this is evidence of grace, the fact that I do this? It's evidence that God's grace is in my life. Could mean that. Or this is gracious. That's the way the SV translates it. It's a gracious sort of thing, and God sees that, and he's pleased with that. But I think it's not that. There's more to that here, let me explain what I think is going on here, and I'll show you. I'm, this is not my creation. There's a lot of New Testament scholars very helpful with this, D.A. Carson, Tom Schreiner, and so forth. Uh, verse 19 and 20, you notice both has gracious thing, gracious thing, or this grace, this grace, and so th- 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 those are two bookends, what he's what what we're told is this is that we whatever we do we should interpret these verses together because they're book-ended so let's look if there's something in the middle there that helps us understand what he means by this grace and yes it is what credit is it you say this is grace for what credit looks like grace is being replaced by credit here what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is grace, or this is credit to you. So what's happening here? What's happening here? Peter, like... He does in so many places, is full of not only the Old Testament, but he is full of the teachings of Jesus because he lived with Jesus for three years and heard him teach and loved Jesus and knew what Jesus did for him. And so he is drawing upon an event that is is recorded in Luke chapter 6, this teaching of Jesus. If you want to turn there, you can, because there's a few things I would point out there. Luke chapter 6, the context there of his teaching of loving your enemies, which is exactly what Peter's getting at, right? Luke chapter 6, verse 32. This is Luke's recording of this event and Jesus' teaching. And the, the main teaching, verse 31, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's what he's getting at. And then he says, verse 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Guess what that word benefit is? Grace. What cares? what grace is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. Well, this, this is what Peter's saying, is it? And if you do good, there's the doing good. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit, what grace, again, same word, what grace is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? And this is the third time now. It's still the same word, grace. So grace here is benefit. Grace here is credit. There are different ways of understanding. And this is the same kind of context. For even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. There's the doing good. And lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward. Now he's bringing it to a heading. What grace, what benefit, what credit to you will live this way. And there will be a what reward. A credit. A grace to you. And so these ideas are all tied together. They're forward looking. Yes, your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. So, why suffer well? Why suffer and endure unjust suffering while doing good? Because God is a rewarder. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, right? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven there is a grace to you a benefit to you a credit to you a reward to you which is what blessing you will be blessed he says in Luke and then Peter picks up again this idea of blessing in chapter 3 when he brings this section what he's talking about to a transition do not verse 9 repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling but on the contrary voice Luke 6 bless for, for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing that you may obtain a grace a credit God's favor towards you so why 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 return good for evil because God is a rewarder of those who suffer like his son for being associated with his son why? Also because Christ's sufferings are the model for us. They are the model for our lives in verse 21. For to this you have been called. This is a causal statement, you see. Uh, he's explaining why, why, endure? why endure unjust suffering. Uh, he says, for to this you've been called. And taking it in its context, what he's saying here is that, listen, suffering is not a detour from receiving the reward, (laughs) the grace. It's the means to it. You've been called to this. You've been called to this kind of life. Suffering unjustly is not some sort of roadblock, detour, obstacle to being blessed by God. In fact, you've been called to this, that God may bless you. Blessed are the persecuted, those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, you see. So we've been called to this, and then he further explains in what sense, because Christ died for us redemptively and as a model leaving you what's he say verse 21 leaving you an example in order that so that you might follow in his steps so his life his sufferings are redemptive yes we'll get to that in a moment but they are also a model for us they are a pathway for us the word there it's very interesting the the word, therefore, um, example, refers to refers to a writing that was in writing books for children, and in these writing books for children, what children would do is they would trace the letters, trace the writing, and that's the term he uses here. He's saying, Christ's suffering for you, Christ suffering on behalf of a sinner." for you, is a model that you are to trace. You are to follow his footsteps and trace how he responded to being treated unjustly more than anyone else because there was no sin in him. And yet, as Paul says, he was made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so his His surrendering himself to unjust treatment, uh, being mindful of God, he says that's something for you to trace and follow in his footsteps. Um, This is, beloved, part of what it means to be a Christian. It's been granted to you to believe. Praise God. But before the crown comes what? the cross. Pick up your cross daily and follow Him. And that will mean at times, in certain settings, that you will suffer unjustly, unfairly. You'll be treated the way you are just because you love Jesus, just because you love Christ. And His example to us is not only to entrust the situation, but to return good for evil. And when did Jesus do that? On the cross when he looked down at these people and said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. They don't realize who they're crucifying. And so he is our example. We we follow in his steps. Chapter 4, verse 1, Peter says, Since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of Thinking, understand this is, this is part of being a Christian. As Paul says in Romans 8, 17, that we are joint heirs with Christ. And, and, if, if, and if we're joint heirs with Christ, what's going to happen? We're going to be glorified with Christ. Yes, if we also suffer with Him. So unjust suffering is not an obstacle to being glorified. Not an obstacle to Receiving the grace of reward. It's the means. It's the means. And while you and I may struggle to grit our teeth and say, Okay, I'm going to try and do this. (laughs) And maybe I'll do it with my teeth gritted and my mind still, my heart still rebellious on the inside. Christian maturity, by the grace of God, can take us to the place where the Apostle Paul and Peter found themselves, where they can not only just write about these things and tell us to live like this, but experience it. History tells us Clement, one of the early church fathers, that Paul himself was beheaded in Rome under Nero. Not long after this time, he also writes and tells us that Peter, this one who who was a witness to Christ's sufferings and then and then pulled away when he was uh, arrested and and warned himself up at the fire of his enemies. That Peter came to understand this, and when he was sentenced to death under Nero, he was sentenced to be crucified, and history tells us that he said, that he accepted it, but said, I want to be crucified upside down. I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. Did that happen? We don't know, but Clement says it did. The point being this, that Christian maturity may take us beyond just, I got to learn, I got to be willing, maybe God will help me, to where we can even even welcome it. And in Paul's case, listen to this, seek it, desire it. He desired this, why? Because it was Christ-likeness. And knowing Christ sometimes involves what? Being treated like him. Unjustly to understand what he went through for you. And so Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. This is his his desire. Verse 10. That I may know him. Well, he already knows who Jesus is, but he wants a deeper knowledge that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, he means, in my life, and may share his sufferings and become like him in his death. What's Paul saying? He's saying, I want to die like him. I want to die mindful of God, surrendered to God's will want to be made like Christ. I think that's something to reflect on, if so, especially if some of you are finding yourself in one of these places, or you have, and you're still struggling with that. Now, a few times in my life, uh, in particular as a Christian, being thrown under the bus by a Christian, by somebody who says they were a Christian, drove me. Drove me. I didn't... I didn't instantly react this way but drove me to my knees and to Romans 12 and to passages like this because I was embittered. How could they? I don't know how anybody survives the ministry without this. You can't without this. And he may take you there in your life. So why do it? Because God is a rewarder. Christ's sufferings are our model. And lastly, because His sufferings make it possible. His sufferings were redemptive and brought new life. It resulted in something. Look down again. 1 Peter 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree. The cross, the crucifixion. That we, so that. Here's the result. So that we, Christians, might die to sin and live. Live to righteousness. This kind of righteousness. Suffering well. Tracing his footsteps. Live to righteousness. How so? By his wounds you've been healed. (laughs) You've been healed of sin's bondage and dominance of your mind and your heart all your life. You don't need to be embittered and angry. You can. You can, by God's grace, begin to be alive to God. Aware of him. And return good for evil. Overcome evil with good. And you hear him here, he's drawing heavily from Isaiah 53, the, uh, the servant song of Isaiah. It's not like Peter's quoting him verbatim, but he's so filled and rich in his heart with Isaiah 53. Imagine what he saw in Christ's life, that he is drawing heavily from the writings there of Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah. I don't need to turn there. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, right? He was wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And by his stripes, by his stripes, his wounds, we are healed. We are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He did not revile. You hear all that coming out in Peter as he is writing what he's writing here, remembering the sufferings of Christ. And so why should we do this? Because we can in Christ. Not only are we called to this, not only do we have the model for us, but he, his sufferings, Turns dead people into living people. Spiritually. The dead come alive. You hear Romans 6 in there. I'm alive to Christ now. And I have the capacity to do this. To walk in his ways. To trace his footsteps. Lord give us the grace to do it. It will come from one place. Him. From the cross of Christ. And then verse 25. He Draws back again from Isaiah 53, 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. And he reminds them and you and me how this came about. How is it that the dead came alive? Alive to righteousness. He says, Here's how it all happened. This is a way of summing it up. For you were stray like sheep. That's who you were. You weren't alive to God. You weren't conscious of God. You were like sheep that were astray. What do. What is this a picture of? It's a picture of lost humanity. uh, The condition of humanity in sin. Uh, You were like the sheep of God astray, but you were his sheep. As Jesus said, I know my sheep. He will bring them into the fold, but you were like a strange sheep. What happens to wandering sheep in dangerous places? Well, first of all, sheep are dull. And they'll walk right into the right into the fire. They're vulnerable. You're vulnerable to sins, lies, and that's where we all were, he says. But he made you alive to righteousness. How? Because you were straying, but now, you see, you have now returned, that verb there, turn means to decisively make a turn. To whom? To the one who is the shepherd and the overseer of your soul. He is aware of everything. He brought you here. Uh, he, shepherd, good shepherd, lay down his life for you. Knows his sheep. No one can take eternal life from him. Right. He guides. He directs. He provides. Overseer, overseer of your soul. Episcopos, an interesting word. Sometimes translated bishop, the overseers who are the elders and so and so forth. But here he's the episcopos of our souls, and that, that, that compound word, the second half of it, scopos, scopas, is the, from which we derive the English word scope, microscope, <clears throat> telescope, something we use to blow things up and see them more clearly, and, and the addition of that little preposition, epi means intensifies it, he is the, he is the super seer. <laughs> God sees all. And the Episcopos, sometimes referred in the ancient world to a man who would go to the top of a mountain and oversee and see the whole troops, all the troops, are they prepared, prepared for battle? Are they ready, you see? The Episcopos, and he is the superseer of the condition of your soul and your struggles and what's happening in your, in your life. You need to trust that, you need to believe him. And so both of these together, the shepherd, the episcopos of oh, our souls is meant to encourage us that uh, while we suffer unjustly, we have one who is caring for our souls, guiding, providing, protecting. And because of his sufferings on our behalf, we need not be embittered. We need not be overcome by sin like we were our whole lives before we met him. We need not be vengeful, that we can, by the grace of God, overcome evil with good. And beloved, you're going to all need to do more of that. Let's pray. Our Lord, our Lord, it's hard to hear these words, and I tell you, it's my own struggle to come to you, Lord, and ask for the grace to see beyond circumstances And be mindful of you, mindful of your shepherding, care, your your oversight, that you know and see all things and will bring about a balance. Help us, God, to particularly those of us who are in a spot right now where we are being treated unjustly, unfairly, to see this, Lord pray for marriages where revenge is the name of the game. I pray for liberty in Christ, healing. Pray for this peace, well-being, and knowing I need not solve it all, but we entrust it all to you. So we pray for this grace, Lord, in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.